It's time for the What in the Podcast. California can be called many things. The Sunshine State, the Left Coast. But can it be called weird? You bet it can. From alien encounters to Bigfoot sightings to ghosts to strange places, haunted histories, you name it, California's got it all. Tonight we're going to go over just a couple of those. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to episode 134 of What in the Podcast. Welcome to the What in the Podcast with your hosts, Kent Whittington and Adriana Camito and Tracy Lynn Hernandez. Hello and welcome to the What in the Podcast. Hello, hello, hello. We're back. <laughs> Been a long hiatus, but we're back. <laughs> welcome to chaos. If we didn't have it, it wouldn't be us. <laughs> That's true. We're back after Christmas. Christmas time and New Year's. Uh, we took a little time off. Uh, how was your Christmas, Tracy? Christmas was pretty good. Uh, ran around like a mad woman because that's what I do. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I hear you. But at the same point, it was relatively calm compared to past Christmases. So this is good too. <laughs> I wish I could say the same, but we've got two kids in the house now and we're running around like chickens with our heads cut off all, all holiday season. Uh, yep. Can't tell you how many light shows we've been to, Christmas events, present shopping, you name it, we did it. I think uh, New Year's Day was kind of a break just because I had to go to work the next day. <laughs> New Year, yeah, it was amazing New Year's Day because because normally New Year's you know night or New Year's Eve and 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 going to New Year's Day this the neighborhood is the DMZ. Okay, I love my neighborhood, but it's the DMZ. Right, right. And it it was for the first time. In forever, it was you know bang 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 pop 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 blah da 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 fireworks fireworks and then it was one oh one and there was no more fireworks. Normally this goes to like four o'clock in the morning, but it was quiet. It was weird. Mine mine was about the whole night long. Just not just the pop pop pop, but the bang bang of you know, the shotguns going off and everything. And then, of course mm-hmm. we have our neighbor with his cannon. Who uh, decides that you know got to shoot off a few rounds of that too while he's at it? So, <sighs> yeah, yeah. It was it was quite quite the night. Um, but anyway, uh, we should get started here soon. Uh, little housekeeping going on. First of all, Adrian will not be with us tonight. She is out sick. Uh, you know, we got we got a break from the kids, and that's what she decided. That everybody was going to finally break down for a day or so. So. No, Adrian tonight. Sorry, folks, if you enjoy having her on, but wish as, her well. As someone who, who just went through RSV with the baby and, and the kid and I, yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> How bad yeah. was that anyway? So for the baby, it was it was horrendous. Uh, we spent time in the emergency room. We have a new nose vacuum that's literally a pump. You, you like a hand piston, you, you hoover out 
drainage. Uh -huh. um, then it hit her mom and I, and that was horrible because we're trying to keep up the baby who doesn't want to eat, but is at least trying to, and us who don't want to eat because we're coughing up a damn lung. But um, yeah, uh, out of 10, I gave it a, a, a four, would not repeat. Um, uh -huh. And the whole time my parents like, well, just bring her over here, I'll take care of her. No, 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 RSV is, is the kind that puts babies and elderly into the hospital and you two have long COVID. No, 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 I'm not sharing this. No. Yeah, we don't want that. Nope, nope, nope. Not going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and to add one more thing to our never-ending pile of why we weren't able to podcast, um, my foot problems never seem to end here. Same foot as before, the right foot. I was walking around at work the other day, and something went pop in my foot. And a minute later, something else went pop in my ankle. And for the next two days afterwards, I couldn't put any weight on it, could barely walk on it. Uh, Living around, around, doing a little bit better, had x-rays. They said there was no fractures, so I'm just hoping it's just a sprain or something like that. And it just goes away on its own after a while. So are you walking I'm, easier now? A little bit easier. I mean, I'm st I've still got that limp. It's very noticeable, but I'm getting around. Work doesn't seem to mind so much. As as it makes me wonder because because X-rays don't show soft tissue very well. No, they don't. So I'm wondering what released <laughs> and then snuck away, and it's making you adapt to it. <clears throat> uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, when I when I first had it happen, I thought you know maybe I had torn a tendon or a ligament or you know at best sprained something. So. You know, that's my hope. And I saw my orthopedic uh, nurse the other day, and she said that it was probably just a sprain, and I should just kind of keep the weight off it. So that's what I'm attempting to do right now. Because keeping the weight off, it's really easy. <laughs> Pop your foot up in the chair. <laughs> Soft chair, because the hard ones seem to affect my ankle. But anyway... Nobody wants to hear about that. They're here to hear about the paranormal. I think we should we should give that to them. What do you think? Sound like a plan to me. Okay. What are we talking about tonight? We've got weird California. Weird dun, California. Dun, dun. Yeah, I spent I spent my afternoon compiling a list of strange things in California, uh, haunted places, cryptids, you know, you name it, um, everything but UFO sightings. I didn't find any of those, unfortunately. But uh, I compiled them all together. We've got a couple pages we can have some fun with tonight. Uh, these all come from the Weird California website, in case anybody wants to read these and reference them. Uh, these are directly from them. When you get the chance, take a look. they got a whole bunch of other stuff on there I didn't even cover. <laughs> so let's get into it. Uh, Tracy, would you like to start? Sure. Okay. So the first part we have here is the terrible curse of Griffith Park. Dun, dun, dun. At 4,200... What? Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> dun, dun. I'm here, I swear. <laughs> At 4,210 acres, Griffith Park in Los Angeles is not... Sorry, is not only the second largest park in California, but is one of the nation's largest parks. Located within the park is the, uh, the Griffith Observatory, the Greek Amphitheater, the Los Angeles Zoo, Museum for American West, the Traveltown Trade Museum, two golf courses, a merry-go-round, countless hiking and horse trails, the haunted Hollywood sign, a few ghosts, and an old 
six, or 1863 curse. Let's make it 200 years older. Why not? <laughs> what? A curse, you say? Originally, all this land belonged to the Felices and was called Rancho Los Feliz. Eventually, it became the property of Don Antonio Feliz, who resided on the land of the sister named Soledad and his 17-year-old blind niece, Dona Petrania. In 1863, Don Antonio Feliz passed away. Instead of leaving his land to his family, he left it all to Don Antonio Coronel. There's still a very small street in L.A. Uh, probably named after him, consistent, consistent, consisting uh -huh, of less than a dozen houses. The story relates how Don Antonio Feliz was wasting away with smallpox, and on his deathbed, Don Antonio Coronel visited him with the lawyer. Come on, behave. Uh, Don Inocante. Supposedly, these two gentlemen drew up the will, and the story claims that, uh, that a stick was attached to the back of Don Antonio Feliz to help the poor dying man nod his head in agreement to the new will. Uh, the new will witnessed by several ranch workers with the surname Paco, who resided in a short distance from the main house. Regardless of if that story is true or not, the land went to Don Antonio Coronel and not Dona Petronia. A few items supposedly went to Soledad and some of her uh, some other relatives. His godson received a few horses, but the lion the land's lion's share of wealth went to Don Coronel and Petronilia with Petronilia receiving nothing. So I'm trying to picture that in my head, the stick on his back, um, so he could nod yes to the will. It, um, I don't know, is it, it's like poking him in the back of the head so he can go forward and back when it happens? Or, you know, it sounds a lot like a ventriloquist <laughs> dummy to me. Puppeteering him from the behind? I'm... Pretty much, yeah. I don't know, where's Jeff Dunham when you need him? <laughs> <laughs> At that point, not around yet. Probably not. Just a few years early. <laughs> Just a few. Uh, uh, Dona Petronia was, to say the least, obviously not pleased. Don Feliz's niece laid down a curse upon the land. Don Carnell, Don Inoculante, and even the judge that upheld the will's legality. Afterwards, in order to put the final touch on the curse, she apparently dropped dead. If you believe in the stories, the lawyer, Don Inoculante, uh -huh. Inoculante, Mm. I can say his name. One again. more time. Inocante. Inocante. <laughs> was shot and killed, and the judge apparently also met an untimely end. Don Coronel's family supposedly died slowly of misfortune and disease. When Coronel passed away, he left the land to his young wife, who promptly remarried. Her new husband and her and her fought over the inheritance in the ensuing divorce. The lawyers consumed most of the inheritance in late. 1868, a C.V. Howard owned part of the land and sold off the land's water rights for a nice, tidy profit. He was supposedly shot in a saloon while celebrating his good fortune. The land eventually passed to Leon Lucky Baldwin, whose lucky streak immediately ended when he started ranch and dairy on the property. The cattle on the land died, fires destroyed the grain, grasshoppers devoured crops, and nothing basically went right. After he went bankrupt and was forced to sell the land to pay for the mortgage, Baldwin was supposedly gunned down by an outlaw. Some stories say Mexican bandits. The land ended up with Thomas Bell, a financier from San Francisco. He didn't hold the land long, though, before selling it to Colonel Griffith J. Griffith. Bell apparently lived into his 80s and then fell from the mansion's banister or was pushed by a mistress, depending on the story you believe. 
Now, where did the story come from? Well, the fanciful mind of one Horace Bell, a frontier author who wrote and founded a newspaper devoted to social commentary called The Porcupine. Often, Bell's stories attacked the social elite in the area, and his attacks of Griffith J. Griffith were no exception. The truth of the matter is probably slightly different than, than the one portrayed by Dr. Uh, sorry, by Mr. Horace Bell. Petronilla was apparently, sorry, Petronia was apparently not blind. She did not die after placing a curse on the estate and lived another 34 years after the events depicted in the story, apparently dying of a heart problem. Although there's no proof that she did or did not place a curse on the estate, she was probably in her early 20s at the time that Don Feliz passed away. The godson who received some horses was her son, Don, sorry, Juan Sanchez, uh, who she had with Esteban Sanchez. So despite these little inconsistencies, though, it's, it, it, it becomes apparent that the telling that everything else, the curse and everything, and the effects of the curse seem to be real. Yes. Yeah. So uh, she didn't kill herself to activate the curse, but the curse was in, was in activation anyway. Exactly. Yeah. She, she yeah. didn't drop dead for it. She just put the curse out anyways. Right. Right. <laughs> the land was sold to Colonel Griffith Jenkins Griffith in 1882. Yes, his first and last names were the same. And his military rank is believed to have been made up. In fact, the only military title he probably ever had was Major of Riflery Practice, the California National Guard. Griffith was well known for his aristocratic presentations, sorry, pretensions, and his yeah. uncanny knack for finding silver and gold. He allowed a man named Frank Burkett to start an ostrich farm on the property to lure residents in the area and Griffith's other surrounding properties. By 1884, the curse popped up again as a huge storm wrecked the land. Lightning came down upon some of the oak trees in the property, and the ranch hounds claimed to see Don Antonio Feliz riding in the rain. Don Antonio continued to haunt the land after the storm, often appearing near the end, or sorry, in the area called Bee Rock. Griffith refused to visit the land except midday, and the stories claim that the ostriches stampeded at night. With ghosts appearing and ostriches stampeding, Griffith eventually foreclosed the ostrich farm, which was failing. Uh, causing Burkett to vow vengeance. Burkett ended up attempting to gun down Griffith with a shot outside the old Calvary Cemetery, uh, now the Cathedral High School on North Broadway. Griffith's wife and sister were paying their respects to their family while Griffith stayed outside and was almost murdered by Burkett. Apparently, Burkett had used buckshot instead of, sorry, used birdshot instead of buckshot, which is the only reason why Griffith survived. Apparently, Burkett thought that he succeeded by killing Griffith, so he committed suicide with a revolver to the head. Good gravy. Yeah, that'll fix him. I'll just kill myself after shooting him. Well, that way I can't be you know, tried by a judge. I am going to go. Gee. Sorry. You'll be tried by a judge. Don't have to worry about my bankruptcy. Yep. I guess it all worked out in the end for him, sort of, but not not the way it should have. Not the way you wanted it to. <laughs> not the way you wanted to. Uh, Half the way you wanted to. The other guy survived. Yeah, yeah. Um, to get away from the cursed land and, and the ghost, Griffith donated the 3,115 acres to the city of Los Angeles, December 1896. But the cursed one let him get away with that easily. Afterward, Griffith, a devout Protestant, came to the conclusion that the Pope and his Catholic wife, Christina Mesmer, were conspiring to poison him. Okay. And steal this all his money. But the Pope, who would not yeah. be in the country... Yeah. Or on the continent. But anywho. Maybe it was um, sanctioned? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, 
Christina was well-to-do with very rich society women herself. It is reported that at dinner, Griffith would often switch his plate with hers when she wasn't looking, thus ensuring that the poison food was in front of her instead. He eventually took preemptive strike and shot his wife when they stayed at the Arcata Hotel in Santa Monica. Although she survived, having to throw herself from the window, land on an awning, and crawl to safely, safety through yet another window, she was disfigured and blind in one eye afterwards. Griffith served only two years in San Quentin for attempted murder, but his rep- reputation was never the same. After his release from prison, the city ignored his attempts to continue building up Griffith Park. Wanting nothing officially to do with him, Griffith did, however, set up a trust fund to have his, imp- to have his improvements. The observatory and Greek theater built and cared for after he passed away. He passed away in 1919 and is laid to rest at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. And he became quite of a paranoid uh, person toward the end, didn't he? Just a little bit. Yeah. Just a little. Uh, if you believe that the writer and newspaperman Horace Bell, Don Antonio Feliz again appeared in 1889. Apparently, the city's influential people had gathered at Griffith Park to celebrate a fiesta. The well, let me correct you real quick. There. It was 1898, not 1889. Sorry, 1898. <laughs> and also chased party goers on horseback as they fled the party. In this century, well, I'm guessing last century, uh, Los Angeles has only suffered one unfortunate event in the land, and that was in the 1933 fire that left 29 people dead and 150 more in- injured. This fire is the deadliest in Los Angeles history. I'm mm-hmm. trying to remember if there was another fire in the 2000s in the L.A. area. I think there was. There might be. I'd have to look it up. Oh, computer, let's stop that. Um, however, this curse doesn't appear to be inflicting any pain upon any more. Upon anyone anymore. Several ghosts have been sighted throughout the park, in addition to Don Antonio Feliz, who, uh, who besides his famous 19, 1898 party crashing scene, has been seen riding the dark trails, laughing crazily on top of rocks and overlooking the park. There's also his niece, Donna Petronia, the original curse layer has been seen wandering the land dressed in white. She additionally appears occasionally in an old adobe used for the park headquarters and has been seen riding a white horse around at midnight. In addition, mounted ghosts have been spotted of riding the park. The spirits believed to be the ghost of Griffith J. Griffith, as the style of rider does not match that of the Spanish Dawn. A ghost girl has been seen throughout the park as she seems to be looking for help. Some people believe she was abandoned at the park and eventually died from exposure, and now she's wandering the park looking for her parents they left her behind. A ghost layer looks, lurks near the merry-go-round, having been, having been seen descending steps nearby, disappearing as, the reaches, as she reaches the last step. Both Traveltown and the observatory brought in teams to investigate paranormal activity due to the number of reported sightings at both. Teams found nothing. However, and of course, there's the ghost of... Peg Entwistle. The suicide victim can be found lurking around the Hollywood sign. I'm having such a fun time reading tonight, I swear. It's a lot to take in. (laughs) (laughs) One location that Donna Petronia is said to haunt is the Crystal Springs Ranger headquarters, also called the Paco Fales Adobe. She apparently appears as a ghostly senorita in a white dress watching from the Adobe's windows on dark and rainy nights. Of course, she never lived in the Adobe, but it's the only remaining structure from that time period and probably served as a house for servants and ranch hands in 19, sorry, in ranch hands. In 1921, the park managed to demolish the original Philly's Manor. 
as if the ghosts, curses, and other general weirdness wasn't enough, urban legend also claims that there's some sort of creature lurking in the park, stalking its visitors. Three witnesses described it as humanoid of some sort. Its legs are very long, as well as its feet, that it was taking huge strides as it was making its way down the street. Its back was bent, and its neck was very long and, be- and was bent forward. It said no human could be bent like this thing was. Its eyes were black, but it did have the whites as well. The skin was transparent green. It was wearing nothing but pants and black shoes from about.com. Lastly, the park has also been used in locations for several movies, including Back to the Future, Back to the Future 2, Rocketeer, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. In the uh, in the Roger Rabbit movie, the tunnel that serves the interest of Toontown can be found in Griffith Park. Adam West Batcave from 1960s, and Batman can also be found within Griffith Park. Cool. Now you can take a break. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, I did look up fires. Um, There was a fire recently in Griffith Park, but it was only a three-acre fire at the LA Zoo. Okay. Uh, This occurred on August 6th of 2023. I know that we had that whole spate of of wonderfully huge California wildfires. I just couldn't remember if it made it to LA area or not. Oh, I do have another one about Griffith Park and a fire in 2007, too. This one this one was a lot bigger, I guess. Fire broke out in Griffith Park that took two days to contain and burn 817 acres. These are scenes, uh, they're, they're showing scenes from the fire that, that uh, threatened some of the LA's most famous landmarks and was one of the largest fires in the area in three decades. So, yeah, I'm looking at some of these pictures. A lot of smoke. A lot of fire near near buildings and establishments. Um, just looking at the devastation afterwards, just a lot of a lot of ash, soot, dead trees. You know, typ- typical California wildfire. Yeah, but this we don't know, do it small. We do it. Yeah, huge. <laughs> so apparently, uh, the curse is still active, at least as far as fires go. So anyway, uh, let's continue on. Uh, since we were talking about Griffith Park, I'm going to bring up the old Cavalry Cemetery. Um, so as we've said, Frank Burkett attempted to kill Griffith, Jake Griffith, outside the old Cavalry Cemetery on October 28, 1891. Cavalry Cemetery was during its time LA's primary cemetery, following the Plaza Churchyard. Not too long after the incident with Griffith in the early 1900s, the occupants of the cemetery were unearthed and relocated to New Cavalry Cemetery east of the L.A. River. In the location, the corner of North, Broadway, and Bishop's Road, Cathedral High School was built. Strange disturbances have occurred ever since. Legends abound of grave-shaped holes appearing outside after heavy rains, spooks wandering the halls, Restless spirits disturbing the living, and old coffin parts appearing occasionally throughout the grounds. Hmm. That kind of has a little, uh, kind of reminds me a little bit of poltergeist in that regard. Yeah. But in this case, they did move the bodies and the headstones. So I don't know what the deal is. <laughs> <laughs> because they can? I mean, I don't know. Maybe the spirits just didn't want to move and they're just not happy about it. Could very well be. I mean, this is where you thought you were going to spend the rest of your afterlife, and then you get wiggled. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to uh, throw in one more here that I, as a Griffin Park deal, and this is uh, the Crush Picnic Table. 
Uh, although the story has been dismissed as a hoax, there is also a legend that Griffith Park has a haunted picnic table. The story goes that on Halloween 1976, 22-year-old musician Rand Garrett and 20-year-old aspiring actress Nancy Jensen were making love upon a picnic table, as one does, off of Mount Hollywood <laughs> Drive when a tree suddenly fell over on top of them, crushing them and killing them. The remains were cremated and the ashes spread over the area where they died. Now, often on the anniversary of their deaths, their ghosts can be seen watering the area around the picnic table. But the urban legend doesn't end there and continues with a series of misfortunes that occurred to the tree trimming crew that showed up to clear the tree that crushed the young couple. The first worker, Morris Carl, sent to cut the, and clear the tree, suffered from cold spells heard strange moaning and crying sounds, and saw the fallen tree violently shake. When he ran back to his truck, the words, next time you die, were written in reverse. I'm sorry, they were written in reverse on the uh, fogged up windshield. Letter by letter before him. His supervisor, Dennis Higgs, later went to clear the tree and was found dead the next morning by a jogger. The jogger discovered a chainsaw lying next to the dead Higgs. The blade bend in a U-shape. The coroner listed the cause of death for Higgs as a heart attack. His hands were injured and some of his fingernails were broken, and it looked like he had been dragged by something 15 feet towards the damaged picnic table. Supposedly, the tree and picnic table are still there to this day. A former park ranger reportedly had a run-in with two ghosts in 2002. He saw two sets of red eyes, and after his flashlight failed and everything went quiet, he felt suffocating and freezing cold. The voice whispered to him, leave us alone. And he smelled a smell of death. The story continues with something grabbing his chest and him passing out. When he came to, his shirt was unbuttoned and his chest hurt. Something had scratched into his chest with a fingernail. Next time you die. The park ranger requested a transfer the next day. Yeah, as I would too. So, which is it? Elaborate hoax or fact-based story? Either way, it's a great ghost story. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, I would say the court's out, in, in my opinion, because I don't know, you know, I don't know much about the story myself, but that's enough for me to kind of shy away from it. <laughs> Maybe the ghost just wants some privacy. You know, they were trying to, they were in the act when it happened. <laughs> it could be. Could be. So, anyway, you want to tell us about the next one? Sure, sure. The Cactus Cat. Back in the 1800s, frontiersmen and cowboys spoke a strange creature walking the desert of California, Arizona, New Mexico, and the rest of the Southwest. The strange creature is a cactus cat. Cactus cat is slightly larger than a normal house cat, standing maybe two feet tall at the shoulder. It's covered with thorn-like hair, has sharp bones in its front legs, and a branch, a branched spiky tail. The barbs in its head are further clustered into a small horn-like ridged parts behind the ears. The cactus cat survives by eating the sap of common cacti found in the deserts where it lives. It uses its sharp blade-like bones in its front legs to slash open the cacti and feed off the sap. Unfortunately for the cactus cat, this off the sap, mm -hmm, often the sap ferments and intoxicates the cat with a sweet alcoholic-laden substance. The cat will then stumble drunkenly through the desert in alcoholic days. Cowboys and other frontiersmen reported hearing cactus cats at night wailing in the darkness, and occasionally rasping its bony arms together. If the stories are to be believed, Cactus Cat would even occasionally attack humans, drunkenly, sneaking into the campsites, leaving large welts from its barbed skin as it lashed out of the campers. 
As funny as it would be to have have an alcoholic cat exist, it's rather unlikely that cactus cats truly exist, and obvious sightings of such feline are few and far between. It's creation probably the result of tall tales told by travelers in the desert who were dealing with bizarre looks of porcupines, the terrifying sounds of pumas, and screaming throughout the desert. Yeah, that's a weird one. Yeah. And I've got a picture of it to show you. I'm going to send the link to your messenger so you can have a good look at it. Messenger. Messenger. Here we go. Open. Hold on just a minute. I'm sorry. Come on, Peter. You can do it. <laughs> sorry, folks. <laughs> there it is. Okay, it's sent. Yay! Now for wait for my computer to load. Well, okay then. Cat, but, yeah, I don't know if it's a cat, but it's got some personality. <laughs> it sure has personality, you, yes. Yeah, Looks a bit like Winnie the Pooh got a muck. Kinda. Winnie the Pooh with a with a long bump, bumpy tail and just kind of leaning against a cactus, like uh, I don't know. Posing for a glamour shot. Go figure. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try to remember to post this one on our page so people can get a look at it. So, um, how about the lost ship of the desert? Shall we get into that one? Yes. Okay. Well, in the 1800s, many stories began circulating throughout Southern California and beyond about a spectral ship lying half buried in the desert sands. Around that time, many migrants after the Civil War passed through the desert on their way to California. Many reported that they saw a multi-mass Spanish galleon. Multiple expeditions left looking for the ship, but none found it. Some claimed it was Noah's Ark. Many more claimed that it was loaded with pearls, a fortune's worth, millions of dollars worth of exquisite pearls. In 1610, King Philip III of Spain ordered Alvarez de Cordon to search the western coast of Mexico and recover the pearls residing there. Cordon hired two other captains, Juan de Iturbe and Pedro de Rosales. He also hired 60 pearl divers and began having three ships built. By July 1612, they set sail to planted the west coast of its precious oysters. Over and over again, the ship would pause in its travels so the pearl divers could jump off the ship and return with the oysters they discovered on the ocean floor. But the going was slow. Eventually, they discovered a Native American village and stopped meeting with the village leaders. They discovered that the Native Americans had baskets of the pearls just lying about, and they formulated a trade of their rich, fancy European clothing for the pearls. However, as the Spanish were wont to do, apparently, the Spanish swindled the Native Americans and traded them only rags and dirty clothes. The Native Americans outraged attacked the ship as it was trying to set sail. Cordon was hit by an arrow and lay ill. His ship was forced to turn around, but he ordered the other two on in search of more pearls, commanding them to look up the Gulf of California. As they journeyed up the Gulf, Rosales's ship struck a reef. The cargo was rapidly transferred to Iturbe's ship, and they continued on. One story says that Rosales's ship was sunk in a terrible storm. With one ship remaining, they sailed up the Gulf and eventually up the Colorado River and into the Salton Sea or the Blake Sea, or Lake Cahuilla, Cahuilla, sorry, as it may have been called long ago. 
Uh, here's where some slight departures in the story. Some stories claim that Iturbe or another Spanish ship sailed into the Salton Sea to find the legendary Straits of Anya, an all-water route from the Gulf of uh, California to the Gulf of Mexico. Some stories claim that the Salton Sea and the Colorado River were higher and filled with water at the time. It's possible. This was 200 years ago. But lots of things change. Mm -hmm. Uh, supposedly this was during an unusual flooding season and that would be why there you go others claim that after Iturbe had sailed from the Gulf of California and onto the Salton Sea an earthquake happened closing off what remained of the Salton Sea from the ocean regardless when Iturbe or whatever Spanish ship had sailed into the Salton Sea turned around to try and head back home they were dismayed to find that it was closed off in fact with the outlet to the ocean blocked the water their ships was currently in was rapidly evaporating. The water slowly receded, and eventually the ship was beached on the California desert, many miles from the ocean. The ship was abandoned, the crew grabbing what few supplies they could carry, and they trudged west towards the water. Supposedly, four months later, the survivors were finally picked up. Other versions of the tale involve a pirate ship loaded down with almost a million doubloons. Another story states that the ship is one of the ships from King Solomon's Navy, carrying the ten lost tribes of Israel to North America. Yet another claims the ship to be from a warlike tribe formerly located in the Indian Ocean. Another puts the Spanish galleon on Lake Cahuilla. Uh, boy, that's hard for me to say. Cahuilla. <laughs> there we go. Cahuilla. Supposedly another name for the large inland sea that eventually became the Salton Sea. Lake Cahuilla, Cahuilla, sorry, existed in the 16th century. It had a tribe of Native Americans living in the area at the time. Knowing that the Spanish were coming to take their treasures and probably hurt the tribe, the Cahuilla Indians instead ambushed the Spanish party that came ashore from the ship. When the tribe mounted a full attack on the galleon and after a fierce battle, annihilated all the crew on board, claiming the ship for the tribe. The Cahuillas began looting the ship of the clothes, foods, and exotic items the Spanish had brought with them, but they couldn't move or break into the heavy, large iron chests that were in the hold. While they were debating uh, what to do with the treasure chests, a storm brewed up and began attacking the galleon. The Native Americans were forced to desert the ship, which broke from its anchor, drifted off into the storm, overturned, and soon sank into the sea, taking its precious cargo with it. By the time the lake supposedly dried up, the ship had been long buried under tons of dirt, sand, and silt. Lastly, one story discusses a Viking ship that could be found sticking out of the side of a mountain in the Tierra Blanco Canyon near Agua Caliente Springs, quite possibly buried in the 1933 earthquake. A lost Viking ship apparently resides in the Anza Borrego Desert State Park in San Diego County. In 1933, near Agua Caliente, uh, near the spring, sorry, Lewis and Myrtle Botts from the small town of Julian, under direction from a strange prospector they'd met the night before, stumbled upon the forward half of the old Viking ship sticking partway out of the mountains in Tierra Blanco Canyon. Sadly, shortly after they discovered it, and before they could take any photographic evidence, a huge earthquake occurred and covered up the finding. Strangely enough, Native American legends actually support the theory that a Viking ship made it all the way around Canada, through the Arctic Circle, and down the West Coast. The Siri Indian legend states that the come from Af sorry, the come from a farm in, 
arrived in a longboat with a head like a snake. These men apparently ha all had yellow beards and hair. They were also accompanied by a red-haired woman. The Mayo Indians also have legends involving a possible Viking ship. Their legend states that the ships sank off the coast and that the Mayo Indians took in the survivors. These survivors intermarried with the tribe, and this is the reason why even today occasionally descendants of the Mayo Indians are born with blonde hair and blue eyes. So, just like lost Spanish galleon loaded with pearls, a lost Viking ship buried under rubble might exist in the San Diego County. How true could this story be? It's surprisingly possible that a flood occurred connecting the Salton Sea to the Gulf of California. Uh, supposedly, in the past, the two were connected at one time. The area between the desert and the Gulf has the potential to be hit with massive flooding. Yeah, well, because it's a desert, of course. Yep. And it would have been plausible for a ship to get carried in on the waves and, the strand, and, and be stranded afterwards as the water receded. Additionally, the waters there have been known in the past to have strange tidal bores that would sweep waves inland. The ship could have been carried inland by one of those. However, it must be from the sheer number of stories and legends told by both Native Americans and frontiersmen that makes the story quite possibly true. In the 1800s, the legends, stories, and failed expeditions began. Some claimed that the ship seen in the desert was haunted and could only be found at certain times of the year. Native Americans told tales about it, which was apparently good enough to confirm its existence. One group claimed that the ship came from 1862 when several people built a 21-foot single-mast skiff mounted on wheels to transport themselves across the desert. Sadly, when they reached the lowest point in the desert, they were forced to abandon the ship and continue on without it. They claimed that the ship people saw in the desert, they claim that the ship people saw in the desert, sorry, was their abandoned wheel-mounted skiff. In 1870, several Indians reported seeing the ship supplying a location of approximately 30 miles west of Dos Palmas and 40 miles north of the then San Bernardino Yuma Road. 1870 continued to bring attention to the ship in the form of a series of stories in the Los Angeles Star on November 12th and December 1st of 1870. The story spoke of a man named Charlie Klesker who claimed to have located the ship and was organizing several expeditions to return to it and bring back the missing ship, which he claimed was filled with crosses and had broken masts. It was reportedly 50 miles or more from Dos Palmas in a region of boiling mud springs. Sadly, there was nothing afterwards, and Mr. Flusker appears to have simply disappeared, much like the elusive ship. In 1878, three German prospectors saw the ship around sundown, about 120 miles northwest of Yuma, and 40 miles east of Indio. The two survivors reported seeing an immense ship under full sail, floating over the desert, sailing like a cloud into the sunset. One of the three prospectors went after it the next morning, but never returned. The rescue party eventually found him dead from a lack of water and strangely naked. Later, an old-timer reportedly spent several days camping inside the slowly rotting hull of, a, of the old galleon, completely unaware of the pearls and immense wealth that lay buried under the sand beneath him. Obviously, he was never able to relocate the derelict ship. In 1905, a prospector named Butcherknife Ike, Butcherknife Ike, sorry, claimed to have discovered a fossil ship buried in the sand dunes of Borrego Springs. 
and in 1915, a Yuma Indian arrived in town paying for his merchandise with pearls. After being questioned, he claimed to have spent the night in a strangely shaped wooden house that was partially covered by sand. The people he spoke to offered him several hundreds of dollars plus a place to sleep for the night and be taken back there in the morning. He agreed, collected his pay, agreed to be lodged for the night, but was nowhere to be seen come morning, having completely vanished. The processing of commercial information is complete. Back to the show. In 1933, Antonio de Fierro Blanco wrote a book that discussed the story of Tiburcio Venquerna, a young mule driver who had apparently come across a lost Spanish galleon. At the time, Tiber Tiburcio was operating as a mule driver for Juan Bautista de Anza, who was searching for a land route from Sonora to Alta, California. He even went into the hold of the ship, saw the pearls, but was never able to relocate the invasive ship. These events occurred around 1775. That doesn't make any sense. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, as early as 19, even as early as 1949, three UCLA students armed with old newspaper accounts, 1910 Imperial Irrigation District maps, and old stories from Coahuila Indians went out to search for the Viking ship. The Los Angeles Times reported the undertaking, but sadly never told the results of the expedition, which leads me to believe that, like so many others before, it too met and failed. It, in failure, sorry, <clears throat> I got to catch my throat there. Many treasure hunters have gone after the missing treasure of pearls. None has brought back evidence of finding it. One of the presumed reasons for this is that the, the sands of the desert shift sometimes moving or obscuring or revealing the lost ship. And of course, a ghost story has sprung up around the incident. According to storytellers, the ship itself, now bleached white and desiccated by the whipping sands blown by the desert winds, has become a ghost with an eerie otherworld glow and singing dead sailors. A skeleton of a ghost ship sails the desert, often being seen sailing into the sunset or along the moonlight. Of course, ghost stories are often in dispute, as another ghost tale places the phantom ship near Cane Springs, and the ship doesn't make a sound as it glides silently past, nor are any sailors in view. So does the mysterious ship laden with fortune and pearls still reside in the desert? Or is it simply a strange story that's been passed down through the decades? Does it still sail spectrally over the sands, heading off into the sunset? Perhaps one day when the sands blow the correct way, we'll be, the lucky, we'll be lucky enough to find out. Ooh. And I'm winded. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to take in there. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see how... The, the two bodies of water were connected. Okay, I can uh -huh. see the, the the Vikings because there are a lot of of um, redheads also that that pop up in that area um, that were not they're not normal Native American hair coloration. Right. So I can see it. Yeah, I mean, there's there. It seems like. But the more evidence that there is, there's more truth to the story mm -hmm. that at least a Viking ship was found was yes had, had gone through there at one point. 
So that you know, if if a Viking ship can come, well, Vikings can get anywhere. We've already proven this. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Where there's a will, there's a way. And yeah, yo, um, but yes, a Viking ship, a longboat would be all about the same size. You know, shorter, less draft than than like a galleon. But the point is that they can still make long distance trips. So, oh, their ships were definitely designed for that. Yeah. Yes, and the the idea or the 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 stated part where we've got boats of varying sizes, ships included, that are washed so far inland because of typhoon, uh, tsunami, whomever, where there's water and it deposits you in there. Why is there a boat in the tree? Well, because two hundred years ago. A tsunami hit, and there's a boat in a tree, and it stayed. <laughs> or, you know, 200 years ago, there was a waterway that went through there, and it got sealed off, and the water evaporated, and the boat stayed. Yep. Whatever works. Desert, deserts may, may have easy floods, but they also have easy drain. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's entirely plausible, and the legend has just grown over time. You know, people still think that ship's out there somewhere, and it's still got its pearls. Yep. Maybe someday somebody will find it. Possible. Anyway, um, let's go on to the next one. This one we've actually covered in the past before, but I found some, you know, a little more information on it to elaborate. If you want to take it away, Tracy, go ahead. I need a break. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> the Dark Watchers, uh, from a from about Avila Beach through San Luis Obispo, all the way up to Monterey, runs a Santa Lu. Santa Lucia Mountains. Lurking within these mountains are the strange and mystifying Dark Watchers. The Dark Watchers, as they've come to be known, are apparently giant human-like phantoms that are only seen in twilight, standing silhouetted, ten foot tall, against the night sky along the ridges and peaks of the mountain range. When spotted, the beings are usually seen uh, staring off the open air on the mountains seemingly at nothing in particular, before vanishing into thin air, occasionally right before the spectator's eyes. Who or what the watchers are, no one knows. Where they come from or why they're, why they're there, again, it's lost speculation. And they, what they're looking for or watching is beyond anyone's current comprehension. The Chumash Native Americans first spoke of them in legends and their cave partners, painters, sorry, drew them in colorful wall drawings. The well, Spanish back... Huh? They might have partners too. You, know, you never know. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Probable. Uh, Spanish back in the 17th. Painters, partners, cohorts in crime. Eh. Yeah, why not? <laughs> uh, the Spanish back in the 1700s called them Los Vigilantes Oscuros, after legendary author John Steinbeck described them in his short story, Flight. The story uh, details a teenage boy who has killed a man and is forced to run to the Santa Lucia Mountains to hide. As he leaves, his mother tells him to avoid the Dark Watchers with this comment. When thou comest to high mountains, if thou seest any dark watching men, go not near them, nor try to speak them. The short story later goes on to have the actual dark watchers appear. Uh, quote, Pepe looked at the top of the next dry, uh, withered ridge. He saw a dark form against the sky, a man's figure standing on top of a rock, and he glanced away quickly, not to appear curious. When a moment later he looked up again, the figure was gone, end quote. And that's the excerpt from the story Flight, written by John Steinbeck, first published in a collection of 12 short stories called The Long Valley in 1938. 
Also, <clears throat> in 1937, the poet Robinson Jeffers mentioned them in his poem, Such Counsels You Gave Me, so you gave to me, as, quote, he thought it might be one of the watchers who are often seen at length of coast range, forms that look human to eyes, but certainly are not human. They come from behind the ridges to watch. He was not surprised when the figure turning toward him in the quiet twilight showed his face and melted and merged in the shadows beyond it. Excerpt from Robert's, sorry, end quote there. Excerpt from Robinson's poet, Robertson, uh -huh, Jeffers' poem, Such Counsels You Gave to Me, originally published in 1937. If Jeffers and Steinbeck were eventually ever saw, one of the watchers is unknown, but the local legend has been around since long before they wrote about it. It is additionally said that Steinbeck's mother, Olive Hamilton, was a firm believer in the dark watchers, and she supposedly brought them gifts of fruit, nuts, and occasionally flowers. Many local families who have resided in Big Sur a long time also sorry, a long time also fully believe in the legends of the Dark Watchers. A few years ago, John Steinbeck's son, Thomas Steinbeck, collaborated with artist Benjamin Brody on a book about Dark Watchers entitled In Search of the Dark Watchers. In the mid-60s, a Monterey Peninsula local, who was the past principal of a local high school, saw them while hiking the mountains. He'd had enough time to study the dark figure, to see its clothing, and notice how the figure was strangely studying the mountains. When the principal called out to his fellow hikers, the figure disappeared. Other than more recent sightings, um, sorry, other mo more recent sightings have included a dark hat and cape in the description of the mountain residing phantoms. And of course, the more creepy tales, those of the urban, le urban legend variety. Tell people who went to investigate the dark watchers and simply disappeared with the mysterious figures never to be seen again. But there could be more scientific reason or explanation to the Dark Watchers. Two theories speculate that people are simply experiencing either broken specter or possibly pareidolia. Uh, huh? Pareidolia is... Huh? Pareidolia. Pareidolia. Sorry. I can read, I swear. It's the simpler okay. of the two theories. It's when a person's brain finds a pattern in things. For example, when you're looking at a mountainside and you see formations that look like faces or seeing objects in clouds that drift by. So in this instance, long shadows at sunset as they play across the sides of the mountain range in Big Sur play tricks on people's minds. <laughs> they seeing forms or figures lurking in the shadows the way we see faces in the mountains. The other theory, Broken Spectre, come on, uh, references the illusion one sees when gazing on a magnified shadow of someone that's, that uh, someone has cast towards the clouds opposite the sun's direction. Apparently, the shadow can appear to be surrounded by strange colors, rings, or shadows as a result. This happens when standing in the mist-covered fog-shrouded mountains. and also sometimes appear when looking on airplane windows. The phenomenon is named after a peak in Germany called Brocken, where the effect is apparently happens quite often. To clarify, you're looking away from the sun, usually down a mountain into Mr. Fogs. These situations are quite common in Big Sur, especially as twilight and the sun setting off the Pacific Ocean and the fog starting to roll in for the night. Yep, I can think of another uh, analogy too. To this would be shadow people. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that? Yes. This is true. Yes. Yeah, I mean, dark figures—you can't make out—you can't make out their features. You might see their eyes glowing or whatever. Um, Especially the glowing if they're glowing red or you know vividly. Oh. Yeah, and then the mention of one wearing a hat and a cape—that kind of sounds like the Hat Man to me. Mm -hmm. yeah a bit of a regard and that's kind of what got me thinking about it um so shadow people i don't know yeah. but 
you know, they're, they're definitely the Dark Watchers, so we'll go with that. Yep. <laughs> Guess it's my turn, huh? Yes, it is. Okay. Well, I get to talk about the Billywhack Monster. Uh, this is one of those stories that, as far as I can only attribute to local urban legend dating back from World War II. As the story goes, a tall, muscular, ape-like humanoid with long claws, gray hair, and ram-like horns on the top of its head lurks around the area of Santa Paula in Ventura County. This ram-headed monster calls the area known as Camulos Ranch its home. Specifically, it's been encountered on Aliso Canyon Road and occasionally the Wheeler Canyon Road near what was once the Billowak Darien Ranch. Some stories attribute the location of its nest as being closer to Wheeler Canyon Road, although most state that it lives in the Darien Ranch specifically. Referred to as the Billowak Monster, the creature has tormented mostly high school students from the Santa Paula High School. Of course, it's high school students. <laughs> these teenagers are, I'm sorry, these teenagers are the primary people who have encountered the half-goat, half-man humanoid creature. It has thrown large 50-pound rocks at their cars and even pounded on the hoods of their automobiles, leaving dents. It's also been reported to carry around a large club. In the 50s, a nine-year-old boy reported being attacked and clawed by a weird animal near the Billowak Dairy. He had scratches across his arms and back. Another reference to the creature was in 1964 when it terrorized several hikers for several hours and thus made headlines in the local newspaper. Which newspaper? I'm not sure of. Also in 1964, an LA Times article reported that deputies found a young boy carrying a sword off to slay the beast. The same article reports that a woman who leased the land once had to hold off 43 monsters seeking children with a shotgun until authorities arrived. The Billowag Dairy, according to the legend, is a decrepit ruin of what once was a state-of-the-art, very advanced and modern dairy farm. It apparently contains underground rooms and tunnels, but is also rumored to be missing walls, etc., which could be attributed to the many decades of disuse. The dairy was started up and run by August Rubel, or Rubel, who moved to Ventura County in 1922 and established the dairy in 1924. Rubel was once a native of Zurich, Switzerland. He served in the American Field Service in France from 1917 to 1919. The urban legend connects him to the Office of Strategic Service, or the OSS. The OSS was a precursor of the Central Intelligence Agency. If the legend is true, the OSS had Reuben performing experiments beneath the dairy, including trying to make a super soldier. The Billowak monster is apparently a product of this research and experimentation that escaped to haunt the local area. Much like other secret organizations, the OSS is attached to all sorts of illegal and amoral experiments, ranging from brainwashing techniques, use of various drugs on unsuspecting victims, studies of diseases for use in warfare, and other inhumane practices. The OSS was started by William Wild Bill, some state his nickname was Mad Dog, Donovan, who was made the coordinator of information for COI in 1941. This office eventually became the OSS. The OSS was responsible for much of the espionage and sabotage in Europe and Asia. The OSS was disbanded after World War II, but a proposal by Donovan eventually led to the formation of the present-day CIA. As the urban legend goes, Rubel, after performing experiments in Ventura County, 
was eventually sent overseas and died mysteriously doing secret work for the OSS in 1943. According to a historical document, August Rubel actually died in Tunisia when he returned to service and the ambulance he was driving hit a German landmine. Although most accounts of the urban legend state that the dairy and ranch were abandoned, leaving the monster to its own devices, other accounts state that Rubel's wife, Mary Colgate McIsaac, remarried in 1946 to an Edwin Berger. Mary died in 1968, and Berger continued managing and living on the ranch that August Rubel helped build and manage. Most recently, on May 5, 2001, Rancho Camulus was awarded a National Historic Landmark. The plaque for the landmark states, Ignacio de Valle established Rancho Camulos in 1853 on part of a Mexican land grant from former mission lands. Rancho Camulos was the setting for Ramona in 1884 in an 1884 novel that generated national interest in the history of Hispanic settlement in California. August Rubel purchased the property in 1924 and preserved the significant historic features of the site. Shirley Rubel Lawrence, daughter of August Rubel and president of Rancho Cumulus, Camulos Museum Board of Directors, was present to accept the plaque. She'd been born and raised at Rancho Camulos and stated that her father, August Rubel, had instilled in her a sense of trust and stewardship over Rancho Camulos. The site, in addition to the secret underground level, supposedly has or had orange trees, multiple buildings, and an aviary that was built originally to house Mrs. Rubel's tropical birds. So if there's really a half-goat, half-man monster lurking in the depths of Santa Paula, there's a lot of questions regarding what it's doing there and how it got there. Although there's little to no evidence of its existence, some cryptozoologists believe it might be related to, or actually, a Bigfoot, granted a deformed or disfigured Bigfoot. But the site's filled with weirdness, most probably originating from wild stories told by the local teenagers. Snipers are said to hide up in the mountains, shooting salt pellets at trespassers. The walls and floors of the abandoned dairy are said to be stuffed with millions of dollars worth of uncashed checks made out to August Rubel. And of course, there is much debate on how to actively get to the dairy and terrifying tales of teenagers visiting it in the middle of the night. Ironically, the Billowack monster is not the only creature sighted in the area. In 1939, several people reported seeing a strange half-monkey, half-man in Ojai, a small town about 15 miles west of the Billowack dairy. Reports describe the, the creature as the size of a 12-year-old boy with gainly long arms and black fur. Mrs. Catherine Longborough complained that the monkey creature stole two of her chickens from her henhouse and a few weeks later, Mrs. Tom Richards saw the creature eating her corn. Could this be an earlier experiment of Rubel? Uh, sadly, the urban legend detailing Rubel's involvement with the OSS remains very suspect. And one also has to be skeptical about the creature when combined with the fact that much of Rubel's family remained on the land after he died during World War II. Would members of his family have reported the rampaging monster by now, you think? Probable. Probable, yeah. Uh, was August Rubel really a mad scientist who worked for the OSS creating super soldiers? I uh, don't know about that one. I don't know about was that he, one. Yeah. Was he really involved in espionage over in Africa when he disappeared mysteriously during World War II? That's eh, possible. Who knows? 
if he worked, if he did work for the OSS, that's entirely possible. Yep. Is there really a half goat, half man monster lurking in the dark depths of Ventura County? Uh, maybe. <laughs> There's a lot of things lurking in Ventura County, so. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> Regardless, it's probably best just to be on the safe side and be and be careful when driving down Aliso Canyon Road, and watch out for a goat-headed monster. This is true. Okay. Yeah, I've seen some some uh, sketches and drawings of the Billowack monster, and it does. It looks like a Bigfoot. They usually they usually make it look like a Bigfoot in sheepskin with ram's horns. Okay. So you know, it's kind of like a kind of like a fluffy Bigfoot. <laughs> Okie dokie. Like like the one in my in the back of my car. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so you want to do the next one? Yeah, so the next one is the Borrego Sandman. Anza Borrego Desert, a massive state park encompassing over 585,000 acres, including one-fifth of all San Diego County. Uh, this makes the largest park state park in California. Parts of this park are called the Borrego Badlands and the Borrego Sink. Within these areas, quite possibly, resides a horrid beast. Eight foot tall, weighing approximately 400 pounds with white furry hair and red eyes. It resembles an upright walking furred ape and is known as the Borrego Sandman. It's been speculated that the Borrego's, Borrego Sandman, also called the Abominable Sandman of Borrego, could possibly be one sort of white fur desert dwelling Bigfoot because north to Northern California's more classic forest dwelling Bigfoot. Native Americans had stories in which they referred to uh, hairy devils, foul-smelling men like beasts that which Native Americans avoided. As people moved into the California in the 1800s, more reports of the hairy beast and upright walking apes began to surface. Such a writer on a stage, such as a writer on a stagecoach, reporting seeing one hiding in some bush on stagecoach ride. In April 80, 1876, a prospector named Turner Helm encountered one of the Brangos Sandmen near Dead Man's Hole. He returned unsuccessfully to communicate. Sorry, he tried unsuccessfully to communicate with it in multiple languages. But when it became aggressive, he brandished his knife and scared it off. Uh, more than a decade later, in 1888, Charles Cox and Edward Dean went searching for the creature, believing it was responsible for some of the unsolved murders that they, they had recently been occurring. Victims having been torn apart like an animal had killed them. The two gentlemen shot and killed one of the Sandmen. But somehow, despite their claims that they had that they had shipped the body back to San Diego for display, the corpse went missing in transit and was never seen again. Murders were treated the creature in 1870 as well. Moving to 1939, an anonymous story, store owner and uh, sorry, prospector was attacked by a group of upright walking apes when he camped on the Bringo Sink. They apparently surrounded his campsite, but refused to come closer to the fire. He described them as covered in white fur with glowing red eyes. In 1964, Mayor, Mayor Victor Stoyanov ran across tracks at some area 14 inches, sorry, in the area of some 14 inches length and nine inches wide. Supposedly the, the mayor, sorry, major took plastic casts and photographs, although none of these can easily be seen today. Also in 1964, a father and son reported running across one of these creatures and having, uh, and heating rocks at them. The two describe it as a shabby ape-like beast. A few years later, Harold Lancaster in July, 1968 was, uh, was, prospecting the east of Branco Springs when he ran across one. 
He fired his 22 pistol in the air, scaring the Baringo Sadman off. Also in the 60s, a man named Frank Cox supposedly shot the beast that was across from him and a man that... Sorry, across between a man and a bear near Warner, uh, California at Dead Men's Hole. The creature reportedly had feet that were 24 inches in length. Lastly, the Travel Channel TV series Mysteries of the Museum, which my mom watches a lot, uh, spoke briefly about the Bringo Sadman in their 284th episode for the 22nd season entitled Bringo Sadman, Expert of New Orleans and the Arctic Ghost Ship. In it, they mentioned a retired police officer in 1962 doing an investigation into a creature after running across the tracks in the desert. The Desert Bigfoot tales aren't just limited to the Brango Sadman in San Diego County. In the late 60s and 70s, several Bigfoot sightings were reported in towns such as Lancaster and Palmdale. Rumors go on to state that Edwards Air Force Base often deals with, the, with a desert Bigfoot, and that the hairy humanoids often so even venture to the base's underground levels. Many tales in Southern California of the desert Bigfoot have used the term Yucca Man to describe the possible cryptid. These tales seem to be more like the Bigfoot tales of Northern California with creature having dark hair. Very little physical evidence has been collected on the Baringo Sandman. A cast of the creature's footprints, fully taken by the retired police officer in, 16, in 1862, can be found at the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine. They have in their possession cast. Huh? 1962. Losing my mind. 1962. <laughs> Um, they have in their position a cast that's 14 inches long and 9 inches wide. It has four toes but no claws. Judging by the tracks, it appears to have walked on two legs. Uh, nearby Ranchita has the Ranchita Yeti, statue standing outside at Montezuma Valley Market, which is originally modeled after the legends of the Baringo Sadman. Some legends of the Baringo Sadman is the same monster that haunts Proctor Valley Road. So San Diego County may have little may have a white furred ape-like Bigfoot looking at its deserts. Sightings have been less than since the 70s, leading some speculate that Brango Seven has migrated north uh, to an hour to the mountains up there. Regardless, if you're out in the deserts of San Diego County, you might want to be careful. You might want to cross an aggressive relative of Bigfoot, one that has had several murders to, attributed to it. Hmm. I wonder where where a desert Bigfoot would hide. Through a portal. Okay. I mean, if we've, already, that, we've already made that summation that, that the reason why we can't find them because they, they slip sideways, basically. Okay. It, yeah, that's a possibility if you go for that. If you're talking about Bigfoot as a natural creature, though, um, I'm sure there's plenty of rocks and canyons and valleys in the desert they can hide in, things like that. Uh, uh, yes, the, yeah, the bumper area around, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, anyway, it's food for thought. I mean, if they can exist in the mountains, why not in the deserts? Exactly. Why not in the swamps? We have we have swamp apes and things like that. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of things. Yeah. So is it just me or are we both having trouble talking tonight? <laughs> it, it's, it's not just you. No. Okay, okay. I'm glad that's the case. Sorry, folks. I've got a bit of a cold. My sinuses are, are kind of working overdrive here, so it is hard to get the words out. My apologies. We're doing our best. We have just one more story tonight. Uh, it was actually mentioned earlier in the Griffith Park story. Uh, this deals with the Hollywood sign and the haunting involved with it. 
So as it goes, Hollywood has had a lot of people try and make it there. Sadly, more fail than succeed. One such failed actress who discovered fame in death was Peg Entwistle. Born in Wales in 1908, Lillian Millicent Peg Entwistle came to the United States in 1922. She pursued a career in acting and landed several roles in stage productions, both in theaters and on Broadway in New York City. Sadly, the Great Depression eventually came to the United States. And with her last seven productions flopping, due mostly to the public being unable to afford the expensive tickets, Peg headed out to Hollywood to try and resurrect her acting career. I don't know what that feels like. I have trouble buying tickets these days for anything. Yeah. She ended up staying with her uncle at 2428 Beechwood Canyon Drive in Hollywood in 1932. Although she was signed to a role in the movie 13 Women, the movie was bashed by critics and ultimately much of her part was cut out of the, of the final release. Over the next five months, she battled depression from the complete lack of work she had. Her self-esteem bottomed out. She took to drinking and even post-topless to get a bit of cash. Then one fateful night, September 16, 1932, she went for a walk around her uncle's neighborhood and arrived at the base of the Hollywood sign. Quite possibly one of the most iconic and famous attractions in the Los Angeles area, the Hollywood sign has stood in the hills above Hollywood since 1923. Originally made out of 50-foot-tall letters, at a total cost of $21,000, the sign first spelled out Hollywoodland and was built by Los Angeles Times publisher Harry Chandler in order to advertise a new housing development in the area. Fixed with 4,000 large low-wattage light bulbs, back then the lights flashing at sky, first holly, then wood, then land, the sign was only supposed to last a year or two. But as everyone knows, it still ex is in existence today on the southern side of Mount Lee and Griffith Park. The land letters were removed in 1949 when the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce took responsibility for the sign and began repairing it. Save some money, take off the last end of it, yeah. Something like at that, that yeah. Time, yeah. At that time, damages to some of the letters were also fixed. The entire sign was rebuilt in 1978 by accepting donations of $27,700, a piece from nine separate donors. Sorry, let me reread that. The entire sign was rebuilt in 1978 by accepting donations of $27,700 a piece from nine separate donors. There we go. Donors included Gene Autry, Alice Cooper, Hugh Hefner, and Warner Brothers Studios. The new letters were 45 feet high and made out of much hardier materials than the original letters. Additionally, over the years, sometimes due to vandals, sometimes due to promotional campaigns, the letters have been altered multiple times to spell out various things, the more famous being things like Hollyweed or Go UCLA. After consuming some alcohol on the night of September 16, 1932, Peg walked up uh, Mount Lee to the Hollywood sign. She took off her coat, folded it neatly, leaving it with her purse, and then climbed the maintenance ladder for the H. From there, she took her life, jumping from the top of the ladder and was forever immortalized in Hollywood history as the Hollywood sign girl. Her purse contained a suicide note that said, I am afraid. I am a coward. I'm sorry for everything. If I had done this a long time ago, it would have saved a lot of pain. P.E. 
It took two days for the authorities to find her body on the hillside below. In one of those strange twists of fate, her uncle received a letter a few days after her suicide, postmarked the day before she jumped. It was an offer for the lead role in a play at the Beverly Hills Playhouse in which, ironically, the lead character commits suicide in the final act. Boy. Yeah. <laughs> now the trails of Griffith Park, of Griffith Park near the Hollywood sign and the surrounding neighborhood of what used to be the Hollywood land housing developments are, are haunted. On numerous occasions, hikers and park rangers have reported seeing a woman dressed in 1930s clothing. The woman, a beautiful blonde who appears full of sadness, vanishes before spectators' eyes. The smell of gardenias, Peg's trademark perfume, always accompanies the apparition. One couple reportedly ran across her while walking while walking along a Beechwood Canyon trail near the sign. Park rangers have told tales of how her ghost appears often at night, especially foggy ones. They've also reported several strange areas where you can smell gardenias, even in winter months, when flowers aren't blooming. In recent years, motion detectors, alarm systems, and automatic lights have been installed around the sign to prevent both vandals and other suicides. <clears throat> Excuse me. The motion detectors have given off numerous false readings since they were installed. Often reported that someone is present, but when park rangers go to investigate, they find no one's there. Just the smell of gardenias. So is Peg still wandering around the area of the Hollywood sign? Dubbed the Hollywood sign girl by newspapers, Peg was eventually cremated at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery and then shipped back to Ohio to be buried with her father. She was yet another victim of the bright Hollywood lights. The Hollywood sign is not accessible to the public, but can be viewed from multiple locations throughout Hollywood. Another ghost haunts an apartment building in the 1200 block of Beechwood Drive. This ghost is that of a very old man who can be heard walking up and down the main stairway both day and night. The disturbance seems to be centered mostly around apartment number four. So that's just a little add-on to that at the end. Okie dokie. So what do you think about that one? I think the closest I've come to the Hollywood sign was driving down the five to my second cousin's baby shower. Well, that's and closer than that a little bit. Closest I've been to it is on TV. <laughs> <laughs> I was, like, on the, well, I was driving along going, going, oh, looky, there it is. That's so teeny. But that's because, you know, you're driving through L.A. <laughs> yeah. At your breakneck 25 mile an hour. True, but then you the also height of the day. The mountain range on the, too. On the, on the freeway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, whatever works. So I'm kind of curious. I thought there were more suicides that happened at the the Hollywood sign. Mm -hmm. So I decided to follow down the, the rabbit hole. And it appears this just her really that has made like the, the big sign uh or at least you know the, it, it, just her peg 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 uh a myth and mysteries of a human head found the hollywood sign but yet yeah, nope and peg 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 okay yeah yeah I guess her plunge was 50 feet. She, or 
from 50 foot work ladder for this. Yeah. So she was yeah. pretty tall and she was pretty high up there to begin with before she jumped. And then she's jumping off the side of a mountain. So she probably fell yes. a lot further than 50 feet before she hit the ground. So yeah, she did. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if there are yeah. any other streams happening this from the Hollywood sign. Let's see, strange occurrences, Hollywood signs. No, just stuff about the sign being haunted and everything, so. Yep. I don't know. Okay. So Peg lost her life. She gave up. And she was so close to a leading role, she didn't even know it. Mm-hmm. feel very bad for the woman. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... And it, it seems to be about that age, too, that that you come in as a teen, you get things going, and then it, it fizzles out. And you're there with stars and... in your eyes, and just nothing's happening, yeah. Yeah. And it's it's rather sad. Yeah. And I feel for her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do too. I mean, she's been dead a while, but still. <laughs> yeah, but still. <laughs> anyway, I think that'll wrap up our, our night tonight. Um, folks, we hope you did enjoy the, the episode. Uh, sorry it's taken so long for us to get back. Like we said, it's been a rough couple weeks, but we're back. We're recording. We're in studio. It's all good. Um, yeah, speaking of which, I'm still looking for listener stories. Um, uh, particularly, we were looking for stories for uh, positive ghost hauntings. Yes. I mean, you see all this stuff. We, we've said this before. You see all this stuff on like ghost adventures and, and stuff like that, where they're really building up the the, the negative aspects of a haunting, but yes. no one ever really hears the positive stuff friendly ghosts you know i'm not talking about just casper i'm talking about ghosts <laughs> that are actually generally cordial to people who come to visit them and i know there's stories out there i've i've heard a few and i'd like to see if uh, our listeners have any of their own they want to share so if you do you know please let us know also uh let us know how we're doing again if you enjoyed the podcast or not you know drop us a line you can do this through the uh what in the podcast Facebook group uh, where we all hang out. Uh, you can contact us on Facebook through any of our names, you know, myself, Kent Whittington, Tracy Lynn Hernandez, or Adriana Camito. We're all there. We're waiting to hear from you. Or you can drop us an email. Where's that email link? Do you remember, Tracy? It's what in the podcast at gmail.com. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> anyway, we haven't used it in <laughs> I haven't used it in a while. I understand that. And then also, also, you know, at the bottom of the description on this particular episode, if you're looking at your streamer, uh, Spotify or whatever, uh, Apple Podcasts, so on and so forth, there will be a message link. You can click that link and leave us a voicemail message and tell us how we're doing, what you think, or leave us a story. You do any of that, and we'll be happy. But also, uh, Apple, Spotify, and several of the other formats will allow you to leave uh, likes or five-star reviews yes. if you are listening. And I know I have listeners out there, and I know you guys don't really 
you're not that active in uh, the forums and whatnot. But if you like us, please leave us a five-star review. That'll help us go up in the rankings, and you'll you'll see us pop up a little more often than we have been in the past. Uh, you know, it's a good thing. Yep, yep, yep. We think. Also, you know, we do have what in the podcast merchandise available through my Redbubble link. Uh, if you're interested, contact me. I'll get you the link, and we can get you out there. It's uh, redbubble.com slash foxfeather, I believe, if, I, if memory serves. I think so. <laughs> yeah. I don't have a state of my laptop. I'm sorry. It's been a while since I used it, but our merch is there. <laughs> There's like 91 different items that you can choose from. Um, please help support the podcast. Uh, you know, so we'd like to, you know, we can do trips and things like that that we'd like to do. You, know, you want us to go to Preston Castle. We'd like to go to Preston Castle. Yes. Uh, you know, we've been out to uh, Bethany's home sweet haunted home. That was one. Of, that was a fun location. Yes. And we did that under our own dollar. Uh, oh, yes. We don't, we don't mind doing, but, you know, your support helps us with that. Uh, and the more support you get, the better, the better opportunity we have to actually go places and and let you know what's going on with these places. You know, you want to, you want a trip on the on the uh, Queen Mary. We could we could arrange that. You know. I don't know where where would you like to go, Tracy? Oh, boy! Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. <laughs> I I I'd love to go to Preston. I want to go back to Bethany's. I want to. Go to um, Alcatraz. I want yeah. to yes, I want to 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 go out of state and check out all sorts. You know, like like the little ghost town thing like that. I want to try to get to Waverly at some point. Waverly. I know we Sandy can't Hotel. do Mackey's anymore, but you know, hey. Yep. Yeah, I'd like yes. to go to the hotel. I'd like to go to Waverly's. I'd like to. Uh, Oh, I can't remember the name of the penitentiary. Uh, the one that Shawshank Redemption was filmed in. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I can't remember the um, name of it. <laughs> it's escaping. Oh, the paranormal people are going to hate me for that. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> places like that. Well, uh, Trans Allegheny. We've been sick. Our brains are allowed to be dumb. Yes, we have brain fog right now. Definitely. And I couldn't remember. I could remember Trans Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, but I couldn't oh. remember. You know, <laughs> anyway, I think that's going to do it for tonight. Unless you got anything you want to add, Tracy? Not that I can think of, other than thanks for listening, and and we appreciate you, and hope you had an awesome holiday season. Yep. And folks, we are going to try to get back to our uh, bi-monthly format. So look for another episode in about two weeks' time. Uh, until then. Stay spooky, and for us, we're gonna do what, Tracy? We're gonna cue the gremlin. Out of sea. What in the Podcast is a part of the What in the Podcast network and is available on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other great podcast formats. 
You can find us on Facebook at the What in the Podcast Facebook group. If you have a great story idea or have a personal paranormal event that you want to share with us, email us at whatinthepodcast at gmail.com with your story, or you can leave us a voice message by clicking the link in the episode description. If you like what you're hearing, please don't forget to leave us a review and rate us five stars. It doesn't seem like much, but it helps us more than you can imagine. What in the Podcast is also made possible thanks to our sponsors and listeners like you. Thanks for listening.